Uh, good morning. So, as Jeff may have said, I know probably 40% of you missed this. Um, just kidding, because you came in late. First service, first service was alive. So I hope you guys are you guys awake. Oh yeah. Thank you, Dave Gennaro in the house. All right. Um, are you ready? So we're in week four of this series through the creation story in Genesis one, a little bit of chapter two. Uh, we're actually on day three today, and I want to tell you uh, this will be a bit of a jam session because I have all these different thoughts. Our slides, I think, are in order, uh, but I just have some things I want to share with you about this text. We're only going to spend about 10 minutes in the text itself, and then I want to move uh, forward into something else. Well, it's related, but just getting forward or moving forward. But the thing about it is what's behind the, me- what's behind the text today, what's behind the passage or lives within the passage is something that's really, really important to me. Uh, and so at, when I was in youth ministry for almost 16 years, like what I'm going to talk about today is what I spent my time doing all the time. And uh, I'll, I'll sort of clear that up as we get there. But so this, I have a lot of interest in what I'm going to talk about today and share with you uh, today as we look through this. So I hope you're ready. We're going to move pretty quickly. Are you ready? All right, so Genesis 1, if you have a Bible, that's probably page 1 for you. Uh, otherwise, it's, uh, we'll put it on the screen. I'm going to do it like we've done it uh, the last couple of weeks. Uh, since we started this series, I'll read it for you, and then we'll kind of all skate this thing together and read it out loud uh, as well. So verses 11 through 13, we're on day 3 now. It says, Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. I like that. There it is done. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and the trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. You got it? You know how it sounds? Let's do it together. We'll read it off from the top. Here we go from the beginning. Then God said, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed, the fruit trees of every kind, earth to bear fruit with the seed in it. Sorry, you were ahead of me. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and the trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. The word good is the word, the Hebrew word for that is the word tob. Say the word tob. Tob doesn't mean that's cool. It means it's useful. It works. So when God has this repeating liturgical drum that he keeps hitting throughout the creation story, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, what he's saying is this is working. This is working like it should. Now, I love the message version of day three. If you have that version of the Bible, the great scholar uh, Eugene Peterson says it this way. God spoke, earth, green up, grow all varieties of seed-bearing plants, every sort of fruit-bearing tree, and I love how he says this, and there it was, earth produced. Now, one of the things you want to notice about day three in the creation story is that on day three, God actually doesn't create anything. What he does on day three is he empowers his creation to work like it should. That's what day three is all about. Nothing is made. Nothing is created. There's no uh, session where all this stuff gets built. What happens in day three is that God empowers or he endows his creation to work like it should. Now, I love day three. If you're a scientist, you probably like this one too because this day in the story works. This is how it works in real life. This is the picture of what ecology 
and nature and all of those things that we study inside. It works. This is everything in this passage speaks to the truth of what we know about the natural world. Is that everything produces its kind, that everything works in cooperation with itself, its own biology, and so forth. But I want you to see something that's going on behind the passage as well, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Three things uh, right off the bat. In the ancient world, you had cultures, and Israel was a part of this at various times in their history too, uh, and were guilty of this as well. But you had many, many cultures in the ancient world that essentially worshipped the creation. They worshipped creation. Not so much the creator, but the creation itself. And so this is why in other cultures, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, uh, things like the sea or the sun or the stars or the moon, they were all gods. They all had their own name, and that was a god. This is why, in fact, uh, in day four next week, when we learn about God putting the stars and the sun and the moon in the sky, is that the writer does not use the names traditionally used for those things at that time because they were names of gods. He just comes up with different descriptions for those things. So you had these cultures, and again, Israel was guilty of this too, of worshiping the creation and not the creator. And so what you see in day three, and you see this in all the days, but particularly in day three, is when God endows his creation, when he empowers it, when he tells it to work like it should, and it does, the writer is establishing a hierarchy between the creator and in his creation. So God is above the creation. The second thing about this text is that creation is generative. It's moving. The word uh, in the text is the word dasha. Say the word dasha. Key word in this whole story. The word dasha means to bring forth. It's a dynamic phrase or a word. It's not static. It's generative. It's about creation being empowered to do what it was made to do. And so the word dasha is like the central hinge in this whole story that God put all these things on earth and then said, I need them to produce and to do what they're supposed to do. Creation is not standing still. We say a lot around here just about history in itself, like history is going somewhere. Like when we take communion together, which we'll do at the end of the sermon, one of the messages of communion is that history is going somewhere, that this is not the end of the story, that there will be reconciliation and redemption of God's good earth and of our lives. And so we say that a lot, but this word dasha also says that. It says that tomorrow will not be the same as today. It will not be the same as today. And we have this uh, picture book at home of Buckhead, and um, it has photos in there from whenever they were able to start taking pictures with film. I don't know the date of that, 18-something maybe. So you've got all these pictures of these old, you know, sepia-tone things in this book, and we're looking through it, and it's so incredible, like, this is Peachtree Road, and you're like, that's just a bunch of dirt. But, um, so you've got, the, we're looking through the Buckhead uh, picture book, and it's really interesting because we live here now, we live in this city now, and it's just so green. It's so full of trees. When people visit here from out of town and stay with us, they're like, I had no idea there were so many trees in a city. But all you got to do is pull out the book and go, well, 100 years ago, there was no trees. This place was disgusting. You know, like, it was ugly. But it's proof in the fact that this is what creation does. Tomorrow isn't the same as today. It continues to change. It continues to develop. It's generative. This is what's happening in day three of the creation stories that we're seeing that creation is empowered to move and to grow. But most importantly, 
according to day three and according to science as well, if creation doesn't work together, it doesn't work at all. If it doesn't work together, and this is what the message is that's coming out of day three, if it doesn't work together, it doesn't work at all. There's a strong ecology of interdependence in God's creation that we find in day three. That the natural setup of earth itself is one of cooperation and community. And all of that is necessary for its thriving and its flourishing. That, that makes sense. It scientifically makes sense, and you'll see in a moment that it theologically and spiritually makes sense as well. And that's what I want you to see in the passage, that the message of day three is that God's world fits together in a way that it works together. That God's world fits together in a way that it works together. It's empowered to cooperate and to flourish. That creation is progressive, that it's moving forward. It's not static, it's dynamic, it's ever-changing, but it's changing how it should, it's maturing how it should. And the thing about the creation story, although humanity doesn't come in until day six, we have to sort of look at this as people and recognize that humanity is not excluded from this. That in God's creation, we are not people who are other than everyone else around us, including creation. That we are also in concert, living in concert and cooperation with the world around us. That includes people, and that includes nature itself. And so part of the message that we get from day three early on is that this is how the world works. It cooperates. There's an ecology to it, and that's important. And if it doesn't work well together, it doesn't work at all. And we will learn soon enough, as you already know, if we don't work well together, we don't work at all. That's the way that works. The best way I can describe this to you is the thing that I hate the most. And it's the ride at Disney World called It's a Small World. (laughs) Is anybody a fan of this ride? Okay, we got a few, right? A few of you people. You guys stand in line for it all day. Actually, it only takes 30 seconds to get on the ride. You know why? Because it's terrible. Nobody's riding the ride, right? (laughs) It's like the oldest ride at Disney World. It's dirty. They don't clean it. I'm constantly noticing that. There's coins all in the water. It's gross. It's not really Disney-esque. But we ride it every year. We go every year for Thanksgiving. It's a tradition, and one of the, one of the traditions in, within that tradition is that we stand in line, and this thing that drops you down, and you get on this boat, and you ride through all these rooms, and you just almost want to die, right? <laughs> because basically the way that It's a Small World ride works, if you've never been on it, you just, The boat moves through all the different countries of the world. So, and I don't even know the order. You think I would know it by now. But you're in Mexico, then you're in some parts of Africa, then you're in Hawaii, then you're in some, you know, Asian country, et cetera, et cetera. But the last room, do you know the last room? The last room is where uh, everyone is Dutch. Like, they're just white. with They look Dutch. Obviously, you don't go to Disney World. Okay, that's fine. But what happens, like, the, the idea behind the ride is you go through all these worlds and you're like, oh, that's really cool, the culture's here and the way they dress and the, the music and whatever. But then you enter this sort of creepy ending where all of that is meshed together. And we have this, it's like Disney's, like, the New World Order. Like, you come through the final scene and you're like, this is the master plan. Like, this is what they're trying to do is we're all going to get squeezed into this thing where we all look Dutch and we're singing It's a Small World together in our own language, Right? 
So at first you ride this ride and you're like, this is so dumb. Can we just ride Peter Pan? I mean, because that's a cool ride. But um, I just lost my cool card there. Um, but I've ridden It's a Small World so many times at this point that it, I now see the ride theologically. <laughs> so now, and I don't know if Disney knew this, I don't know if he had some covert Christians on staff who were designing this ride, but the ride is actually itself a pretty good picture of the biblical story. That it sort of begins in Bab, you know, the Tower of Babel where everybody's in spread out, we all got our own languages and it's just sort of a, a mixed up world. But it ends, as it does in Revelation 21 and 22, it ends where all of that is gone and there are no more distinctions. And so you go through this final room and as cheesy as it is, you're like, this is kind of what God has in mind. And as you're in the final room, it's not as though everybody looks exactly the same because they still have their African dresses on, their Mexican dresses on, and their you know, Asian outfits on, or whatever. but they all are in the same place and they kind of look the same, but they still, like, you know, they still you know, obtain their identity. And yet they're all like one. Like that's the point of the ride. Like you're supposed to come out feeling good about yourself and about the world, uh, but that doesn't work at Disney World because you leave that sort of moment and you come out and there's families fighting right there. It's awesome. So uh, it's all make-believe. But it's a nice picture of what God actually has in mind. This vision for the world is that all these different kinds of communities of people live in a oneness, a world where there is unity amidst great diversity. And this is exactly one of the lessons that's coming out of day three is that the world must cooperate with itself, or it will not work at all. Uh, last Wednesday, um, I went to Corner Bakery because it's right there. But they have this thing that they've created over the last couple of months that we've discovered. It's called the Pomegranate Smoothie. And it is, I'll pay 20 bucks for it. Like, it is amazing. And we all bought one one day. It's so cold you can't drink it. But we didn't know that until we tried it, and we were all sort of having that contorted, you know, I think I'm going to die, but this is so good. So I walked over there Wednesday to get one of those, and um, it was in the afternoon, and as I'm walking back, I notice on the other side of the street, like every police car in Buckhead is lining the street, which isn't all that abnormal. They run drills on the train station below. There's all these different things they do up here, but this looked a little different, and then I saw the news trucks, and I was like, something's going on. So I walked down the sidewalk near one of the news trucks, and I asked the guy what was going on, and he said, uh, somebody shot a guy. You know, and I was like, oh. <laughs> I mean, you know, Wednesday, it's Wednesday. It's just another Wednesday in Atlanta, right? But it was really interesting, just the scene itself, and I was like, well, what, do you know anything? And he's like, yeah policeman shot a guy in the parking deck. Wow. So then I came back in and I do what you would do. I just got online and was like, somebody's got to have something about this already. And of course, everything is a developing story. Because we followed it, basically what had happened, I don't know if you heard about this, but um, a policeman recognized someone as a possible suspect who had stolen some things. And so he approached him and that guy fled. And so the policeman followed him in to, I think, the parking deck. And then the guy pulled a gun on the policeman. And at that point, I mean, it's done. 
right? And I was thinking about that story, and the thing about me, and I know this is one of those, like, you know, this is number 33 of things that doesn't seem like you, would, you wouldn't think about me, but I have kind of a soft spot in those situations because it's like what is happening at that very moment. I mean, this is the sort of thing that when it happens, it reminds us of how dislocated everybody can get. Now, I want you to follow this. It reminds us that we're not always in harmony with each other. It's the sort of thing that happens when people like yourself, like me, start to feel dislocated from humanity, from the world itself. Everything feels upstream. There's a real sense of um, dislocation from normalcy, from opportunity. You don't feel like you fit in anymore. There's a sense of feeling alone, of being on your own in the world, so you just sort of make your own way. You live a self-directed life. And depression sets in, and everything feels against you, right? Because when you pull a gun on a policeman, that's the end of the road for you. Like, in your mind, you have nothing left except this last stand. So it's a, it's a reality of dislocation that God never intended for people to feel. And in so many places, and I want you to hear this, in so many places in the Bible, the human story is connected or held up against the natural world. Like, it just uses the natural world to say, as, you know, this is a reminder of how we should be as people. There's a story of Jesus uh, speaking to religious people, and he says to them, look, if you don't praise God, he says, that's fine, because the rocks themselves will praise God in your place. If you, if you choose not to, with your life, honor God and praise him, creation will do that itself. Now, there's some Old Testament connections he was making, but there's also this day three connection that he's making that the world itself knows its order. And the world itself will continue to testify, so to speak, to the greatness of God. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we're dislocated from that. But creation itself continues to roll forward and to worship, as it were, as Jesus said, the Creator. So I want to show you a couple of texts uh, about this. Again, in so many places, the human stories compared to the natural world. And one of the best is where Paul writes his church in Greece in the city of Corinth, and he says to them in chapter 12, uh, he, he says this, just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. We'll leave this up here for a little bit, because it gets kind of complicated. But he's writing this church that's kind of gone astray. There's some struggles interpersonally uh, within the church. It's kind of a messed up situation. Corinth is one of my favorite churches in the Bible, because it is so messed up. And Paul has to write multiple letters to them to sort of correct what's going on. We have two of them in the Bible. There are actually four. We don't know where the other two are, but oh my goodness. If you get four letters from an apostle, you're a messed up congregation. And so, uh, but we have this one and the other one, but in verse 12 uh, of this part of his letter, he just says, let me just sort of retrain you on some things. There's a bunch of you in this church. There are many, is what he said. There are many of you. And what you need to recognize is that all of you belong together as part of a body. And everything works together on the body, at least, at least it should. This is sort of what Paul is saying. And let me read some of the stuff in between for you 
Um, we didn't put it on the screen because it's so long, but he says, indeed, uh, the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, uh, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Now, before I go on, I want you to know something. There's a lot of research and uh, some great studies on the humor in the Bible. Like, was Jesus funny? Was he, was he ever funny? Did he ever crack a joke? Was Paul funny? Was anybody funny? Uh, there's a lot of ancient humor in here. And I may have to point it out to you because it's 2,000 years later. But uh, trust me, they were laughing really hard, okay? <laughs> so Paul starts to say, look, just because you're hand, it doesn't mean you can say to something else on the body, like, I don't need that part, Right? Uh, He says, and if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, now this is part of the ancient humor, can you imagine? A giant eyeball, right? See, you think it's funny? First service, not so funny. They were just like, it's not funny. I see a lot of Monty Python opportunity in here. Like, here comes the big eyeball, right? This is what we think the church is. We're all eyeballs. This is what Paul's saying. If, uh, where am I? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Then he goes on to say, as it is, there are many members, yet one body. Such an important turn right here. The eye cannot say, this is a command. You cannot say this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you. That right there is a commentary on the breakdown of the human story. I don't need you. We don't need you. We don't need your kind. We don't need the kind of person you are. We're fine without you. I don't need you. Paul, in just a short line, puts the most extensive commentary on the breakdown of the human story right there, is when we say to the world around us and to people in this room, I don't need you. We're fine without you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again to the head, the head to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, he says, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Listen to what he's doing. I mean, it's totally upstream, totally mind-blowing. It's totally culturally, he's critiquing culture. He's critiquing us because we say they're dispensable. He says, "Mm -mm." in the church, those who are weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. Uh, And our less respectable members are treated with great respect. That's Paul's nice way of saying those who are completely messed up, we treat them as though they're not. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body. How does that work, by the way? If everybody's trying to lift up the lower person, there's no dissension. It's all ascension. That's what he's saying. If you're trying to pull people up that normally are looked down upon or downstream or down the ladder, when your whole community is focused on we raise people up, there's no dissension. The behavior is ascension. That's what he's saying. 
but the members may have the same care for one another. Four things, and then I'll close. Number one, this passage from Paul is simply an obvious paradigm for all relational environments. Marriage, family, dating, friends, work, and on and on. It's just a basic paradigm. I mean, you get it. Like, look at the screen. We're all in this together. We all work in the same place. We all share the same home. We all live in the same apartment. We're all in the same church. It, it, It works in every environment. Like when the people in a family or on a team or on a workplace, in a workplace environment are only there for themselves, you feel that. Like it's heavy in one direction. Like he or she's too lazy, they're not pulling their weight. We're all feeling that. You understand what I'm saying, right? Or in a, in a family, when the wife and the kids are working feverishly to have a healthy home and the husband like, it's all about, like, Duck Dynasty all night long on the couch. Like, it's, it's heavy in one direction. He's not pulling his part of the weight. And so the family suffers, right? In dating, if it's all you and not him, get out. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you start to ask yourself, would this relationship continue if I stopped doing everything I'm doing? It's heavy in one direction. It's, there's not a oneness in that. Or in your friendships. I mean, again, it just it applies in every facet of all our relational environments. And so Paul is just it's a very simple statement. Just like, yeah, if we're going to do this right, if we're going to live as people that God has designed us to be, then we have to see every relational environment we're in as something that we're all needed, we're all part of it. But number two, the church he's saying, is a place for all people, and it's a place where all people are needed. That's the most important part. Everybody's needed. And let me just break this down for you this way. I have a conviction, again, this comes from 20 years in ministry, I have a conviction and a strong belief that whatever the local church has as its needs, because every local church has its own needs, whatever the needs are in any local church, I have a strong belief and conviction that the solution to those needs are in the building. Let me break this down even smaller. In our small groups, I've seen this work firsthand. You know, there's 10 of you in a living room, and a need has been shared, and then we do what we say, we're, you know, what we're supposed to say, which is we will definitely pray about that need. But as it turns out, almost 100% of the time, the need, the solution to the need is in that circle. And so someone shares this need, whether it's financial, emotional, there's something with their family, or something that just they need, and then we all stand up and we hold hands and we're praying, and there's like this other person in the group that actually can meet that need, like right then, and God is above this prayer, within this prayer, and he's like, man, this is a great prayer, but I'm actually spending my time bothering this one person, because they can meet the need. Because that's how it works, right? Like, this is how God has set up the church, like, that's fine. Pray to me about your needs. Prayer is petition. That's fine. But I'm just rerouting it to the guy or the girl or the family who can solve it. That's the way it works. Very rare do we have a need and it just miraculously comes to us. It's always through the hands of a person. And if you dig far enough into that story, that person or that family will say, I don't know, we just really 
felt like God was leading us to help you. And that's how it works. That's how it works. In every church, whatever the needs are, whether that church is massive or off the radar, every church has its needs to thrive and to flourish as a community of faith. And therefore, what Paul is saying in this is, if a church is struggling, it is because someone in the building is saying, it's because I'm not an ear. I'm an eye. I'm a foot. We're all feet here. And when needs are expressed and people blow those off, it's because, well, that's a, that's a need that an eyeball has, not a need that a foot has. So, and Paul's saying you can't do that. Everybody is a part of everybody. And this is how he ends it. If one member suffers, then all suffer together with it. Now we get that. When we go through loss, someone dies. We get that. When someone is missing from our life, that's when we awaken to uh, creation's communal wiring and setup. We feel that. We understand that. Um, it's not easy for me to go through a whole sermon series without telling you a story about rock and roll music, so today is the day. Uh, when the great John Bonham, drummer for Led Zeppelin, died in 1980, uh, there are three names that I remember hearing as a kid of musicians who had died. I remember someone coming in and saying that John Lennon had died, been shot, and I remember hearing that Elvis had died, still a kid, and Bonham like, perhaps one of the greatest drummers of all time. When he died, um, the interviews with the band, I mean, the band just stopped being a band at the death of Bonham. Done. It's not in excess where they just keep replacing people and you're like, who are these people anymore? Like, Guns N' Roses, really? We're done with that. Like, that was a long time ago. I don't even know who you people are. This band, that was it for them. And all the interviews, and they were just on Letterman uh, last fall. They had gotten inducted into the Kennedy Center Awards and whatnot. And, they were, and Letterman was interviewing the three remaining members, uh, Robert Plant, John Paul Jones, Jimmy Page. And they asked that question. I mean, it's, always, it's the question that's always gets asked. What was it like when John Bonham died? And they were just like, it was over. It was over. And the reason, and again, this stems from the very beginning until now, these interviews about losing a band member, it's not that they couldn't replace a, the drummer with a good drummer. That's not the point. What they were talking about was this sense of chemistry and community that had existed between the band while they were on stage. It's such a live experience that they just didn't feel like backing up and starting that process over of becoming one with another drummer. So they just decided at nine albums, we're done. We're done. And the very first statement that was issued from the band reads this way. I think this is, I think this is incredible. It says, we wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend, the deep respect we have for his family, together with the sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves with him and with our manager, this has led us to decide that we can no longer continue as we were. That's what Paul's saying. When one member suffers, we all suffer. I mean, what a biblical move from a non-biblical band. Like, nope, we're not just, we don't just fill spots here. We are together. We're a community. 
Okay, maybe more religious. C.S. Lewis uh, in The Inklings. I don't know if you're familiar with The Inklings, but it's this incredible uh, story of four guys. This is a picture of the four guys. I'm sorry, I don't know who the fourth guy is. It's sort of like Ringo, but um, <laughs> you got to feel bad for that guy. I, I just don't even want to like try and guess who it was. I think it is Tolkien's son, but I don't remember. But you've got the other three in here. You've got C.S. Lewis, you've got uh, Ron Tolkien or J.R.R. Tolkien, or, and then you've got Charles Williams. This I mean, this group of guys working at Oxford, meeting in two different pubs, day after day after day, smoking pipes, drinking pints, and writing some of the world's greatest stories, these guys had the life, you know? And so they would sit down together and just write these, critique each other's stories, help each other's out with their narratives, talk about school, talk about writing, talk about their wives. I mean, just what you do, right? And so this group of people did this for years and years and years and years. And then Charles Williams died. And uh, it was a devastating blow to the community. And C.S. Lewis, when he was writing about this, said, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, he says, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I need and I want other lights other than my own to show all his facets. And then he says, Now that Charles is dead... I shall never again see Tolkien's reaction to when Charles tells a specifically Caroline joke. And then he says this, far from having more of Tolkien, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I actually have less of Tolkien. You get that? Like he's saying, I can't even, there's so much more missing here because Charles is gone. There's so much more missing. It's not just that we're down one guy. We're down a lot of things that we share together. And those are now gone. Now when the scriptures show us a picture of the church in the early days, it was essentially a picture of community. That's what they highlighted. Sometimes they highlighted teachings. Sometimes they highlighted practices. Sometimes they highlighted doctrine. But most of the pictures that we get of the early church in the scriptures is this picture of community, this place that had a sense of interdependent connections uh, with one another, between people, for the purposes of not just getting to know people, but growing in your faith and serving uh, those who are in need. And the church is basically people. That's what it is. It's a gathering of people. Some say church is a meal, right? It's It's a table. It's where we come together and we share in the Lord's Supper. That's the church. It's a gathering of people. That's why the church isn't a building. That's why the church isn't a place. We have some great cathedrals in this city. Fantastic cathedrals. My favorite is St. Philip's, right down the street at Amen Corner, right, you know, two miles down the road. That's a beautiful building. And I was in there the other day, took a picture of it, and my friend texted me and was like, man, I've always wanted to get in that building. And like, I just had this thought. I was like, it is a beautiful building. But there is no cathedral on this planet, no cathedral of brick and mortar stands a chance to the cathedral of humanity. No cathedral that we can build matters much as the cathedral of humanity that God builds. In fact, God says in the Corinthian, Paul says in the Corinthian letters that God has made his temple us, that he has moved into our, we are his cathedral in some sense. The church is us, it's we. The task of the church 
is to be the hub of community, a place of interconnected, interdependent people moving forward together. That the church doesn't break down into isolated spiritual growth, but it stands together with each other. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis from his 1942 lectures known as The Weight of Glory, he said the New Testament knows of no solitary faith, period. It's not there. Think about the Lord's Prayer. The whole thing is in the plural. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. It's in the plural. The creeds are in the plural. The word you in the New Testament is almost always in the plural. It's addressed to the body, to the community. Even the story of Jesus comes to us in the plural, not with one version, but four. God himself, as we'll see later in this series, is somehow a community. When God created us, it was let us make man in our image. That somehow God circled up with himself and out of community, he created us for community. And so when people were baptized in the days of the early church, it certainly was an act of salvation, an act of giving yourself over to the way of Jesus. But, and I don't want you to miss this, it was also a way for people to announce to everybody else around them that I'm entering a new community of people. That this act of baptism is not just out of faith, but it has its roots in wanting to be a part of a community, a new association. Baptism is rooted in the behavior of walking away from a self-directed life and into a community-directed life. And so if you ever feel alone or left out or eternally single or avoided and you feel angry or depressed over that, I want you to know that the scriptures would agree with you on your feelings. I know a lot of pastors would stand up and say, look, you just need to be content with your singleness. That's not true. Hey, look, if you're just going to be alone, you just got to learn to be content with that. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, in the creation story that follows this one in Genesis, notice what it says in Genesis 2.18. God says, it is not good for man to be what? There it is. Think about this. Think about this. The man is living with the lions and the tigers, and they're not eating him. It's a virtual paradise. Creation is fresh. It's where it should be. It's working how it should. He's walking around with God, and we would think, that's awesome. And God's like, "Eh, something's missing. I know it's missing another one. Another one is missing. This person needs another one. And so when people say to you, hey, look, if you're alone, you're just gonna, that's just, you know, you got to be content with that. No, that's not what the scriptures say. You don't have to be content with that. You were not made to be content in isolation. That's not good, God said. That's actually really bad for you. What's good for you is that you're not alone. And what's good for you is that you find a helper. That's the next part of this verse. Like God says, I will make a helper for him. Now, the verse is often used for marriage, that's fine, but it's really a passage about community, a helper. 
someone to push through life with. It's not good for man to be alone. Leonard Sweet says it this way, we were not created to fit in, we were created to fit together. Now let that leave an impression in your minds today. See, when we don't fit in, we pull guns on cops. When that's been our pursuit, like, I'm not in anymore. I'm not accepted. I don't feel a part of this thing anymore. Then we go into this self-directed, self-preserving life. Because I don't fit in. And the goal of life is not to fit in. The goal is to fit together. Day three is all about how the world fits together. And that we are a part of that. We are not other than that. We are a part of that. And I don't have to stand up here and tell you Uh, because you already know, and plus I've already told you today, that the church's mission is to be a hub where people fit together. the, The mission of a church is not that you fit in here. In fact, the worst thing a pastor can say to someone is, I think you'd really fit in in our church. That's, that's terrible. What that's saying is, you are like everybody, you were, we have all eyeballs here, and you're a, you're an eyeball. You will fit in here because we're all eyeballs. We're all feet. And we need, we need more feet. We all look the same. That's a terrible thing to say. I think you'd fit in here. You'd really fit in here. It's your style. It's your people. That's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to be a place where people fit together. Which means, you know what? We've been missing an eye. Good thing you came along. I need you over here so that you can contribute to this community. That's the best thing a church can be is a place where people fit together. The worst thing that a church could be is a place where you could fit in. What is that? That is completely upstream from what Paul was saying to the church in Corinth. Dude, open the doors a little wider. You all look the same. You all like the same things. You all say the same things. You all hate the same things. That's just terrible. And Lamont said, you're pretty sure, you're pretty certain you've created God in your own image when it turns out that he hates all the same people you do. (laughs) Done. Like, that's convicting, is it not? This is our church community, and we all love and hate the same things. You'll fit in here. No. The best church is when the pastor and the people say, I don't know. It's a wreck of people. It's a collision of people. It's the last room on It's a Small World. I don't get it. It's creepy, but it works. (laughs) So when I read day three and then stumble upon the great theologian Leonard Sweet when he says, none of us were made to fit in, but we were made to fit together That's solid. That's what we're talking about. And I think one of the greatest visuals of this as we move into communion is communion itself. It becomes this thing that we do every week. It can lose its meaning because we do it every week. But what's important to remember is that this is the thing that binds us together. This is the reason um, that we can say we are unified. We have four tables in this room, two in the front, two in the back. If you just take a moment today and and look at the lines of people that approach the tables, you will notice that 
I don't really think that any of these people would ever hang out other than at this table. This is why the ancients would say that Christianity is a meal. And it's an odd, crazy meal where everybody is invited. And it's not a party that we would normally be at together. But in God's world, in God's creation, on a day three kind of thing, we all fit together. And so when we take the bread and we drink the juice, not only is it a reminder of God's grace and mercy and salvation in our lives, but it is also this picture, this reminder that he has come to break down all the distinctions. Not that we don't share our own uniqueness, but it's just that those things no longer matter. And I know that I say probably maybe too much, but if I have a vision for this place, uh, for CCB, it is that we continue to be uh, in a, it's, it's relationally painful at times, but to be a place where all people can come regardless of their backgrounds, their current life status, financial, emotional, spiritual, and so on. And it is a place where we can rely on the Spirit of God to help us fit together as a diverse group of people. But I just, I don't want to pastor a church where everybody fits in. That's just too boring. And it's hard to keep up. But my vision for this place and for your lives in this place is that you will continue, like when you want to invite somebody to CCB, like you just become, it becomes normal for you not even to think about whether or not they'll fit in. I'd invite them, but I don't think they'll fit in. Mm -mm. That's stopping short of what God has in mind, not just for us, but for every, every church. So that's just my personal rant before communion. But let me pray for you, and then as you move to these four tables, um, take a moment and look around and uh, smile at just how odd this party is. And, uh, and just take a moment and reflect on what you've heard uh, today as well. So let me pray for you, and then uh, we'll do that, and then sing a couple songs. God, uh, thank you for, um, again, the series that we're in and just the hard work of extracting what you're trying to say to us through its words, its breakdown of the different days. You always amaze us. You always amaze me uh, as I stare um, at the words on the pages long enough to listen to you and to hear you speak. And God, it just doesn't seem to be too many uh, paths that your word takes other than the story of you trying to restore the world to where it was. And that one day you will, that one day we will enter this place where uh, distinctions no longer matter. But until then, we have to fight that. We have to be very conscious of our church community, of our neighborhoods, of our workplace, our families, that we kind of live in a world where it's, there's this myth of compatibility and it just, it frustrates us when we don't fit in. But God, what we're asking is that you move within this church family and all the churches in this city to break down those walls and to be places where people fit together in such a way that it just says something to our neighborhoods, to the city, that when people have reached the end of their rope, have just sort of reached the end of their effort, 
they will see us, that they will see other churches and say, I can go there. I can find a place in that family. So God, as we take communion, the bread and the juice just now, uh, I pray as always that you move through the room in a presence of peace, of joy, of grace and mercy, and also that you are present in these moments, that you are truly here and encouraging us as we take part in this ancient meal. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.